Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome our listeners on KFUO AM, also worldwide, KFUO.org. And of course, we welcome all who are here with us in our gymnasium here this morning as well. We're going to continue our tradition of studying together the, the lessons that are assigned for next weekend. So we'll be looking today at the scripture lessons assigned for Sunday, May 13. And before we begin that study, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to give you thanks and praise for through Jesus Christ, your Son, we overcome the world. We overcome sin, death, and the grave. We thank and praise you for that victory that is made ours simply by your grace through faith in your Son. We thank you also for this opportunity to study your word together, and we pray you would send your Holy Spirit to guide us into, into deeper truth, into more truth and knowledge concerning you, concerning our relationship to you, and your will for us as we live in this world as your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, for those here in the gymnasium, we have the sheets on the side that do have the scripture lessons on them. And we're going to be looking today, starting with the book of Acts. Now, I, uh, maybe say a word here. Uh, I've been saying that during this time of the church here, uh, post-Easter, we've been doing some readings from the book of Acts as the first lesson, kind of replacing the Old Testament lesson. And, um, and we've also been reading through 1 John. And this will be the last Sunday that we'll be reading through 1 John. And it will be the last Sunday that we will have a reading from the book of Acts as the first lesson. The following Sunday, May 20, will be Pentecost already. This uh, week, Thursday, is Ascension. And uh, maybe a little commercial for those in the St. Louis area. We have our annual Ascension service right here at St. Paul's this Thursday at 7 o'clock. Uh, we're honored to have... President Dale Meyer, president of Concordia Seminary here in town, will be our preacher for that service. Seven o'clock, there is also a strawberry festival to follow. That's a long-standing tradition here at St. Paul's as well. But we certainly want to invite any in the St. Louis area uh, to our Ascension service on Thursday. So, that having been said, you'll see then the following Sunday, May 20, is Pentecost. And, of course, Acts will be the second reading, Acts chapter 2, the account of Pentecost. And then after that, we're kind of back to the standard Old Testament epistle and gospel, okay? When we get into the, the long green season of the summer. All right, let's take a look at the uh, first lesson for May 13 now. And this is Acts 1, uh, verses 12 through 26. Now, just a little context. What has happened here? Christ has just ascended, okay, in Acts chapter 1. The disciples go out with him, remember, and he is taken up from them. The disciples stand there gazing up into the sky. A cloud envelops him and keeps, uh, takes him from their sight. And then remember, the angel says to them, you know, that uh, why do you stand here gazing up uh, into the clouds? And uh, he will return just as you have seen him leave. Go back into the city and, and wait for pow power from on high. And we're in that intervening time now in Acts chapter 1, uh, sort of between the Ascension and Pentecost. By the way, just a little review, how many days after Easter is Ascension? Forty. Forty days. And then Pentecost is? Fifty days after Easter, right, or ten days after Ascension. All right. 
So let's take a look here, starting at verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. Then they, which would be the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath journey away. So let's stop here for a moment. Uh, the Mount of Olives uh, is very close to Jerusalem, just to its east. The Mount of Olives, of course, also has the Garden of Gethsemane in it. And it is right across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. And uh, the, to say the Kidron Valley is maybe giving it a little more uh, uh, hype than it deserves. It's not very big, not very large at all. You can walk even today, if you go to uh, Israel, you can walk from the Mount of Olives, from the Garden of Gethsemane, down into Jerusalem in, uh, say, 15, 20 minutes. It's not, not very far at all. There's the Brook of Kidron that goes through the Kidron Valley. And so this is where the disciples were. They're coming back to, back to Jerusalem now, as they've been instructed, after Jesus has ascended. And notice there, Luke, who is the author of Acts, of course, goes a little bit further and lets the reader know that this Mount of Olives, or Mount Olivet, is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Uh, what he means there is there are restrictions on how far you could travel on the Sabbath day. And that restriction in our modern measurements was kind of close to a half a mile, was as far as you could go on the Sabbath. Otherwise, you'd be doing work, okay? And you weren't supposed to do that. So he's kind of letting the reader know, if the reader doesn't know, that this is very close. It's not that they're a far distance away from Jerusalem. So, uh, verse 13, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, the upper room, we wonder, we don't, we don't know this for sure, uh, was this the same room, same upper room, where Jesus had the Passover meal with his disciples and, and, as we recall, instituted the Lord's Supper. Is that the same upper room? It's kind of interesting that in the account of the Lord's Supper, Luke does use a different word for that upper room, but that doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't the same room. And further speculation, where were the disciples meeting, for example, on Easter evening? When Jesus came, remember they were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, and Jesus comes and stands in the midst of them. Was that the same room? And was it the same room as a week later, uh, the next Sunday, when they're again behind locked doors, this time Thomas with them, remember, and Jesus comes and is right there in the midst of them again? We don't know. The answer is we don't know for sure. Is it the same room? Did they go to a different room and begin meeting there? Uh, we just don't know. Um, I will say this, when you, when you go to Israel today and they show you what is supposed to be the upper room, uh, I would not bet the farm on that one, let's just say. Uh, it, 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 in fact, it is just not. Uh, in fact, the last uh, tour that, that we led, that my wife and I led, we did not even go to see it. it it's quite frankly, there's better stuff to see. This is just not, the one they show you is just not it. Uh, now, again, that's not a denial that there was an upper room. It's just that the one they show you is just not it, okay? So we just don't know whether they always met in this same room, the same one they had the Lord's Supper in, the same one on Easter evening and a week later, or whether they had moved around. Uh, we just don't know. But anyway, notice they go back there, wherever this was, to the upper room. 
Now, the list of disciples here that is given here is identical to the one that Luke has in Luke chapter 6, verse 14 and following. So, this is the same list of the disciples. Now, obviously, who is not there? Judas Iscariot is not there, obviously, and we're going to see why in just a minute. So, let's just read through this list. Peter and John and James. Now, they are, of course, the, we might say, the, the inner circle those guys are always there when something big is about to happen. Uh, they're the ones that Jesus takes further on into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray uh, on Monday, Thursday evening. And it just seems like they're always, these three are always around uh, when something big is happening. Okay? And we know that they had a common background. They were all fishermen and, uh, and so on. Uh, and, and Peter and, uh, I'm sorry, James and John being brothers, sons of Zebedee. Andrew and Philip and Thomas, notice Thomas is back there at this point, Bartholomew and Matthew, of course, the tax collector, uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot. Uh, just to say a word about that zealot, uh, that was a group of very, I guess you would call them very strong nationalists that kind of led the rebellion against the Romans and led to, starting in 66 AD, a uh, revolt against the Romans. And they were, a, as I say, a very nationalistic kind of group that wanted to throw the Romans off. And they were sort of, he was, uh, they were called zealots because they were zealous for the people. And so they started a revolt in uh, 66 AD, and four years later, the Romans come in and completely destroy Jerusalem including the temple. And those of you that uh, have seen or, or know the history of Masada to the south, uh, a couple of years later, uh, the Romans finally take Masada to the south. Uh, anyway, it's just interesting to me, it's always been interesting to me that, that, that Simon here, one of the disciples, is recognized as being one of the zealots. And we don't know a lot more about this, of what the connection was, what he did afterward. But it's just kind of interest, interesting to me, anyway. Uh, then notice, and, and Judas, the son of James, just to make sure we don't mistake Judas Iscariot. Now notice, what kind of condition were they in? All these with one accord. Literally, it means with one mind. They had the same mind, okay? And it, it is so great to see this, that after Jesus leaves and ascends, they are of one mind together. They're not arguing and bickering. Uh, they're agreed on the teachings of Jesus, and they're all of one mind or one accord. Uh, they were, notice what were they doing there? Devoting themselves to prayer. Isn't that interesting? Devoting themselves to prayer together. Uh, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, I want to stop there just for a moment. There, uh, when it talks about women, there was a group of women who traveled with Jesus and, frankly, uh, it seems, were of high means, were, were wealthy, so to speak, uh, and helped the funding, you might say, helped the treasury of the disciples. By the way, who was the treasurer, remember, of that? Judas, and we know from Scripture that he... Uh, like to dip into that treasury from time to time. A little sidelight there, kind of coincidentally today. Now, 
who were these women? Uh, if we take a look at Luke 8, starting at verse 2, for those of you that have a Bible here, page back to Luke 8. I'm just going to read this, and, uh, and we see some of these women identified. Oddly enough, again, Luke is identifying. That's one of the characteristics of Luke, both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. He mentions women many times. So, starting at verse 2 here of Luke chapter 8. Uh, and all, also, uh, I'll go back one more verse, verse 1. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and Susanna and many others, many others, who provided for them out of their means. Okay? So this is that group of women that we're talking about here, who even after Jesus ascended, are still there. They're still there with the disciples, and uh, this, this group is described as being of great means and providing for them. Okay? And Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last mention we have of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Don't know what happened to her after this. Uh, tradition has it, I think I've mentioned this before, that uh, remember on the cross, Jesus says to the disciple John who is there, behold your mother, and to her behold your son. And Jesus there, as he is dying, gives to Mary, uh, gives to John rather, the responsibility of caring for Mary, passing on the responsibility of the eldest son, in this case, to care for Mary. And tradition Outside of the Bible has it that John did exactly that, that they settled eventually in the city of Ephesus, uh, and uh, that he cared for her through her remaining years. Uh, John, being very young at the time Jesus instructed him to do that, uh, lived, we think, beyond uh, 100 A.D. And uh, if you go to Ephesus today, they'll show you a house that, again, they say is the house where uh, John cared for Mary. And uh, I'll just say the same thing about that that I said about the upper room, and we'll leave it at that, okay? But it, there is a house there you can go and see. Uh, now, the last mention we have of her, and notice here, what else, who else was there in the group at that time? His brothers. Now, we uh, definitely think, and I want to show you another spot, if we look at Mark chapter 6, verse 3, because the question comes up here, well, brothers, are we talking about biological brothers via Mary, of course, or are we talking about brothers in the broad sense, just, you know, we, we use the phrase brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? Now, obviously, we and the Catholic Church have a difference of interpretation on this. Uh, we think it very, very well could be actual biological brothers. And I, I wanted to take you to Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 3. This is when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, he uh, is not exactly receiving a warm welcome. They're, they see him and he's teaching, they hear his teachings and they say, wait a minute, isn't this guy Joseph's son? The guy, in other words, the guy we saw growing up here? So. Uh, verse 2, let's start at verse 2 of Mark 6. 
And on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the, the wisdom? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such muddy works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of, notice here, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him and so on. It goes on from there. But there are actual names of brothers given here. And there are, and, and it also references sisters as well. Now, it's, we think that, that the, uh, well, the one that's mentioned here, uh, Judas, we think may well be Jude, same one who wrote Jude, uh, the book of the Bible. Uh, and, of course, uh, later on, uh, James uh, is uh, one of the, the leaders in the church. So we have, take, we have always taken the position that, yes, there's nothing to say that Jesus did not have, after him, of course, uh, biological brothers and even sisters. Now, the Catholic Church has a teaching called the Perpetual Virginity of Mary, which says that there were never any other children, obviously, if she's perpetually virgin. We would say, no, the scriptures, at least to us, seem to indicate otherwise, that in fact there were biological uh, brothers, at least, that are named here later on, afterward. In fact, unfortunately, uh, it is another spot we could have gone and seen where they think he's lost his mind, Jesus, when he comes back to his own territory. So we think very, very clearly there were other brothers and possibly sisters. Sisters aren't named except that word. And again, to be fair, the Roman Catholic Church would say, no, we understand this to be simply brothers and sisters in the very generic, broad sense, like we use brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? So anyway, this is the group that is there after the ascension, and there's even more. Notice uh, verse 15 now. In those days, meaning in that time frame right there, Peter stood up among the brothers. Now, I, I will admit there's a, there's a case right there where it's used in the broad sense, right there. The company of persons was in all about 120. So you've got a church starting out there, at least in Jerusalem, of about 120. Now, we don't think that was the whole Christian church yet at that point, because here's this. In Galilee, when, when in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about all of the people that the risen Christ appeared to, remember there's that one phrase there, and he also appeared to more than 500 people, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And so we think outside of Jerusalem, there were many more Christians, if Jesus can appear to 500 of them at one time. We don't have an account of where that exactly was. We think it was probably in Galilee, where he was going to go and meet with his disciples. Okay? But they're meeting there, about 120 of them. So Peter stands up. That should not surprise us. You know, Peter is always the one to kind of take the bull by the horns, and uh, sometimes for the good and sometimes for the not so good. But anyway, he stands up, and he says, he's going to uh, teach here or preach here, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, 
Now, you know, we kind of glide right over that, but what doctrine is, is affirmed by what Peter just said? Who's, who's uh, David is being what here? By the Holy Spirit. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Take a look at what he says. Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. You know, why do we say the scriptures are inspired by God? Because the scriptures say they are inspired by God, right? The Spirit, notice it's the Spirit speaking simply through the mouth of David. So there's a great attestation there to the, the inspiration of Scripture, that no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but holy men of God were carried along or inspired by the Holy Spirit. Spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's just in passing, you know, here's a, here's a great reference to it. So he's going to go and show them now that, that David even prophesied concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So it's kind of recounting. You, were, you all remember Judas. He was with us. He was, you know, had a full stake in this ministry. And now, interesting, Luke, see the parenthetical, verses 18 and 19, and Luke kind of takes a sidebar here, just in case the reader doesn't know, if this reader doesn't know everything about Judas. So parenthetically, in verse 18, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. I've often said, you don't want to do this for devotion right before a potluck uh, meal. <laughs> Not the most appetizing. Uh, but taking this apart, uh, he acquired a field. Now, remember, what was the price that Judas got to betray Jesus? 30 pieces of silver, right? 30 pieces of silver. And he takes that away. In Matthew chapter 27, we have another description of what, what happened after Judas saw that Jesus was condemned. And we won't read it right now, but to summarize it, Judas comes back. He's stricken with grief when he sees what happened to Jesus. He comes back, he brings the 30 pieces of silver back and wants to undo the deal, basically. The uh, chief priests and scribes do not take that uh, money back because they call it blood money. And you can't, they don't want that in the temple treasury any longer. It was, in their words, blood money. So the, actually the chief priests and scribes in Matthew 27 are the ones that go and buy this field. And in Matthew 27, verse 7, it is called the potter's field. And we believe it was called the potter's field. What do you make, what do you make up pots out of on a wheel? Clay. And we think that that field was known for having good clay there. And uh, they bought that field, and it became known from that time on, not any longer as simply the potter's field, but Akaldama, or the field of blood because of the money that was used to buy it. It was blood money. And while the, the chief priests and scribes did not want that blood money in their treasury, they had no problem buying a field with it. And guess who they would end up burying there in the future as time went on? It became a cemetery of Gentiles. It'd be okay to bury Gentiles there. 
in a field bought with that money. Not, not Jews, though. We can't do that. But Gentiles could be buried there. Again, go to Jerusalem today, and you can see where we believe, and I think this is fairly accurate, where this field was. It is just south of, um, of Jerusalem, and uh, your tour guide should point it out to you. Uh, it's there today. And so that's what they did with that money. And uh, Luke recounts this whole uh, thing in, in connection with Matthew. If you read both of them, you get the full account. Judas goes and hangs himself. And as it says here somewhere, and we don't have a, I don't want a, any more detailed description than we have right here, but somewhere his bowels just gushed out uh, in the field when he hanged himself. Now, let's, for a moment, I just want to mention something here. Was Judas the only one who betrayed Jesus? What other disciple in particular? Peter, remember? Three times he denies knowing Jesus out there in the courtyard, the third time using the strongest possible terms. So he, he denies Jesus, betrays him in that sense, I guess, and you've got Judas who betrays him by revealing his location so that the, the temple guard could come at a time when the crowds weren't around and arrest him. So both of them are sorrowful for their sin. Both of them are contrite. And in fact, Judas, you could even say maybe even more so in that he tries to go back and undo the deal. We don't quite know what Peter was doing as a result of his despair, but he certainly was in despair. So what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Judas stays in despair. He never comes out of that. Peter is forgiven by Jesus and has faith and trust in that forgiveness given him by Jesus. In John chapter 20, Jesus is going to reinstate him and ask him three times, do you love me? We think that's probably referencing the three times Peter failed the test the first time. So here's the difference, and this is a Lutheran understanding, that we say that tr true repentance involves two things. One is contrition and sorrow over our sin. But secondly, and just as important, and more important really, is faith and trust in the forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. Peter demonstrated both of those things. Judas stuck in despair and unfortunately dies in that despair. And I bring this up, uh, to you today to say that, that how important it is that when we deal with people who are in great despair over a particular sin or sins that they have committed in their lives and maybe are thinking, you know, God just can't forgive this sin. This is too great. This is, I'm so ashamed of this. Um, I don't know how I could have done this. Well, obviously, they are contrite over their sin, aren't they? And what do they need at that point? The gospel. They need the gospel. That your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. That Christ has taken that sin upon himself and has died. His bloodshed cleanses you from all sin, even that sin. There is only one sin that is unforgivable. It's sometimes referred to as the sin against the Holy Spirit. And that sin, of course, is unbelief. And it is, it is the rejection of God's offer of forgiveness. It is sort of self-evident that it is unforgivable because if our sins are forgiven by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if you're not with faith in Jesus Christ, 
you've rejected God's offer of forgiveness. That's the only one. But sometimes people in life, when they commit a very grievous sin, will, I've heard people say, is, is that the unforgivable sin? No. Every sin is forgivable. And we want to, in our, in our dealings with people on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, when we find someone who is struggling with a sin that they have committed years ago, and it still haunts them, again, the gospel, those, that sin is forgiven. Okay? And unfortunately, Judas uh, did, not, did not have faith and trust that there could be any forgiveness for him. Now, finally, after this little parenthesis here in verse 20, uh, Luke gets back to the story here, and he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, that's where he was quoting David, uh, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's cited from Psalm 69. And then let another take his office. And that's cited from Psalm 109. So what we basically got here is we got 11, and we want to add a 12th to the, to the picture. And, and Peter is saying, look, it was prophesied about Judas and also prophesied that we should let another take his office. So now, verse 21, we get to how are they going to do this? How are they going to get a replacement for Judas? Okay? Uh, so verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Let's stop there. There are two characteristics that they say somebody is going to have to have if they're going to take Judas's place. The first one is what? Somebody who has been what? With us from the very beginning. Okay? So this person, out of all the 120 that are there, this person has to have been with us from the beginning. And what's the second uh, characteristic or quality? Has to have what? A witness of the resurrection. Someone who has seen the risen Christ and says, yes, I have seen him. Okay? So those are the characteristics. And now what are they going to do? Notice verse 23. And they put forward two, so two individuals. We don't know if these were the only two that, that met these criterion, but at least these two did. They put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Eustace and Matthias. These are the two guys that were put forward. Um, Barsabbas simply is a Jewish phrase which means son of the Sabbath. We think he might have been born on the Sabbath day, quite frankly. It's a very simple way to explain that. And then uh, many times they had a, a Gentile name, and that's what that Eustace is, sometimes called Eustace, would be a, sort of a, a name amongst the Gentiles for him. And uh, we don't know uh, much more about this guy. Uh, in fact, I was reminded that, uh, when I was thinking about this, Pastor Smith had a sermon, this was some time ago, months ago, about, oh, maybe it was last year, uh, on this Sunday, uh, where he talked about what would it have been like to be this guy, Barsabbas, who was not chosen, you know? He, he's one of the two, and he's not chosen, okay? Kind of a letdown. And we don't know anymore about him after that. We don't know what he did, we don't know where he went, and Matthias. And uh, there's a tradition, Eusebius, who is the uh, first century Jewish uh, historian, uh, says that, and again, this is outside the scriptures, so we're not taking this to be necessarily true, but he said, he wrote that this guy Matthias was one of the 70 that Jesus sent out, 
and that later he was a missionary to what we today know as the Ethiopian territory. Now, again, we don't know that for sure. That's a, a Jewish historian saying that, but he's a pretty trustworthy historian. Now, uh, notice what they do, verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Notice how delicately Luke puts that, to go to his own place in talking about Judas. Very, uh, we say, diplomatic way of saying that, okay? And notice there, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. We don't know what this casting of lots was, it has been sometimes compared to uh, almost like dice or dominoes or something, where it's some, some way that you don't manipulate things, you leave it to God to, to choose. Okay? And uh, in the Old Testament, they had the Uman and Thuman, uh, that we don't know what that was either. And it was, it was in the priest's uh, uh, belt uh, sash. Don't know much about this, but it was some way of saying, Lord, we're turning this over to you. You show us who it is, okay? Now, uh, for any churches who have a pastoral vacancy, and we're going to have one coming up in the not too distant future here at St. Paul's, can we learn anything from how the disciples replaced uh, Judas? I don't want to compare uh, uh, replacing Pastor Smith <laughs> to replacing Judas. Uh, don't tell them. But say, just, we'll put that aside. But in choosing how you're going to uh, call a pastor. Notice there, what did the disciples do? First of all, what did they determine? The, the requirements, the, require the characteristics, the criterion for that person, okay? Now, that's what we are going to be doing here at St. Paul's in the coming weeks and probably a couple months, is there will be a congregational-wide survey that will go out and anyone and everyone who's a member here will be able to respond to that survey uh, indicating what qualities or characteristics they think are most important uh, amongst a, a great many. And then, uh, and, and then in determining those, and then our a position description is going to be crafted, or there is a position description, but maybe revised as a result of that, because it hasn't been revised in about I think, 20 years or more. But then also, what are we going to be doing a lot of during this entire vacant time that, that the apostles also did? Pray. Absolutely. We already prayed last Sunday. I don't know if you caught it. We prayed for the work of the call committee, the senior pastor call committee here at St. Paul's. And notice, notice the content of that prayer. It was, notice there in, uh, let's see, uh, notice in verse 24. Show which one of these two you have chosen. And the whole assumption here is that God already knows and has already chosen someone. Show us who that is. Right? Reveal it to us. And so that's kind of a great way to pray and a great confidence with which to pray, isn't it? That the Lord of the church knows he has someone, or maybe even has more than one, but at least has one in mind. Show us who that is. Work through us to identify who that is. 
And so we kind of keep that in mind, the, the call committee here and a call committee in any congregation uh, who is in a vacancy would be keeping that in mind, okay, as they go forward. And notice there the lot fell on Matthias, and then Luke just very, uh, you know, almost brushed aside, and he was numbered with them. That was it. That was the deal. Uh, just a, an aside here real quickly. Uh, I think it was, uh, boy, I'm trying to remember what year that was. It was around... Uh, 02 or 03, maybe, something like that. I received a call to be the senior pastor, I'll just say, of a, of a large church in this district. And I didn't even know that my name was on their list. And so I get this call uh, at night, and uh, it's the head elder saying, you've received a call, you, the voters' assembly has received. And I said, really? I said, well, how did you uh, land on me? And he said, well, we got together in a meeting, and we read, there's this uh, uh, personal information form and a self-evaluation tool. We read yours and we read this other guy's. We prayed and we voted. I said, really? There was, there was no interview. There was no anything. And, and so, you know, there, there are churches that, uh, I, the reason I say this is there are churches who feel very strongly that you don't do interviews, that you don't do any of this other thing. You do exactly what was done here. And uh, this is exactly what this church did. And uh, so, again, I said, even interviewing at the seminary uh, is a relatively, when we go and interview, as we did, we interviewed Pastor Thompson, and we interviewed, I think, about four other, three or four, at least three, maybe four others. And uh, that's a relatively new, uh, historically, uh, practice, even at our seminaries. Uh, the idea, again, before was you simply uh, leave it, to the uh, seminary faculty and, and prayer to determine who that person's going to be, okay? So anyway, let me stop here. Boy, we went, we went long on that one. Sorry, that's my fault. Uh, any comments or questions on this part? All right. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, I did say no to that call, yes. Well, again, just because uh, they prayed does not necessarily mean they select, yeah, that I was the one that God had in mind. I certainly didn't think so at that point. Yeah. Yeah, just be, uh, you know, we better mention this too. Just because we pray doesn't mean we can't be directed someplace else. And maybe, maybe that person that ended up going there, and I, I, I know him, was, did a fantastic job, was not ready yet to receive that call. I mean, there are a lot of things, you know, that go into this. God answering uh, this prayer. Rebecca? Yeah, the question was about uh, the uh, Roman Catholic understanding of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And uh, they really hold, try to hold fast to that uh, as, again, a sort of a veneration almost of Mary. Not really denying, I, I don't think I've ever heard a Roman Catholic say, well, if he had other brothers and sisters, then he was sinful because he, again, was the firstborn born uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit. But there's sort of this almost veneration of Mary to the effect that she, I think, in their thinking, never really experienced any of the passions that we would associate, you know, romantic passions and so on, and they want to maintain that. And in fact, there's also another doctrine that she, was, she didn't die, she was assumed up into heaven. And again, we just don't see that anywhere, anywhere in the scriptures. Perpetual virgin, rest of her life. Uh huh. Yeah, I think uh, the question was again about even uh, even her mother uh, in, in some teachings. And again, we're getting into Catholic doctrine. And I, 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 
But the idea, I think, in general is they want to preserve Mary and her uh, uh, having any, uh, again, I'm trying to think of the right phrase here, but any romantic or uh, uh, sexual desires and so on. She's put up on a, on a pedestal. And, and we would say, no, Mary was a simple, uh, was a virgin, definitely. We don't deny the virgin birth. We affirm the virgin birth. But there was nothing that made her any different other than the Lord's favor was, was shown her for that. And we don't feel the necessity to try to preserve her virginity on until the point that she, and certainly the point, not the point where she's assumed, but the point where she dies. So it's just a different, it, it goes along, and it started happening um, in the 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 time frame where Mary was really getting elevated in the, in the Roman Catholic Church, even to the point where today it still is that way. Okay? That's kind of a thumbnail answer. Bob? Right. Yeah, that's correct. Bob uh, said that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary also was that she was totally sinless. That's exactly right. Yeah. And again, we just don't, we just don't see that in the Scriptures. We affirm she's a virgin because Scripture does, but all the other stuff we just don't see there. It's just not there. Okay? All right. <laughs> I don't think we're going to make it today. First uh, John uh, 5. And uh, starting at verse 9, we're going to go through this maybe a little more quickly. Uh, remember 1 John, we've got some secessionists, people who were in the church in Asia Minor, separated themselves from the church, were, doing, were teaching some very destructive doctrines and apparently having inroads there. They were teaching, number one, that Jesus did not come in the flesh. He was not incarnate. He was simply a spirit that uh, it doesn't matter then, since your body is going to be taken away and destroyed on the last day, it doesn't matter what you do with your body, you can sin all you want. And third, that you don't have to show love toward anybody as a Christian. So again, as you read through 1 John, notice how those three things are attacked. Uh, he came in the flesh, uh, that we show love toward one another, and that if you are in Christ, you avoid sin. Okay? So, this, these verses, let's read through these. Uh, if we receive, uh, starting in verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Now, this testimony, what is this testimony? Well, if we back up right before these verses... Uh, and look at verse 6 of 1 John 5. It says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. We spent a long time talking about this. The water, we think, is a reference to Christ's baptism. The blood would be a reference to his what? Crucifixion. And the Spirit testifies along with them. Remember, the Spirit at Jesus' baptism came down in the form of a dove. And we won't read it now, but in John chapter 1... Uh, you know, John sees Jesus coming, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, in John 1, 29. And in the verses after that, 
we read that John had been told that the one he sees the Spirit come down and stay upon is the one, is the Messiah, is the anointed one. And that, we would say, is the Spirit testifying that this one, this Jesus, is the one. So what John is saying here is that these three things all testify concerning Christ. You've got God's testimony over here, water, spirit, blood, and you've got the testimony of men over here, these secessionists, these false teachers. So who are you going to believe? That's John's point. God, obviously, right? And so, uh, and just as an aside, in the Old Testament, how many witnesses did you need to convict somebody of a crime or to prove a point? Two or three. You could not do it with just one. Two or three. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, several places. So, three, John's point is, these three things are God's testimony. They all agree. And then you got these folks out here. Who are you going to believe? Okay? So, going on. So, that's the testimony that's being talked about there. God's testimony is the water, the blood, and the spirit. So, going on, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. This, this, kind of, this testimony lives in our hearts then, okay? It's what we know and believe and confess. Um, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar or thinks him to be a liar. And in other words, the secessionist who said he didn't come in the flesh and so on. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's pretty clearly stated, isn't it? Couple things there. When does your eternal life begin? Baptism. Yeah, or the moment you first believe it. Maybe you weren't baptized as an infant and you came through the word, uh, believe later on in life. Notice, John, notice the present tense, has life. It's, I think we often think of, well, you know, my eternal life when I die, that's when my eternal life begins. No, your eternal life has already begun, still here on earth. So that life that we have through Christ is a present tense reality. Then the other thing that is mentioned there, and again, this is a, this is, I know this is offensive to a lot of people. This is off-putting to a lot of people. But notice there, I guess I would refer to it as the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ and the exclusive claim of Christianity that there is salvation in no one else. Notice in verse 12 there, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life, does not have this life yet that he's just talked about. Okay? And again, um, it's not that this is our opinion, it's simply what Scripture says. You know, there's Acts 4, verse 12, there is no other name given among men, under heaven among men by which we are to be saved. Uh, Jesus, no one comes to the Father except through me. So there's just one more. Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. Question was, what about an infant then who is, uh, it dies before is born, before baptism is even possible for, for to happen? Uh, several things. Now, this is going to be, again, a pretty thumbnail response. We always point to a, a loving, compassionate, merciful God. Uh, we point to uh, the one case, for example, in Scripture where uh, Mary is pregnant with Jesus 
and comes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And the spirit enters Elizabeth, and John the Baptist leaps in the womb. And we say there is an example of the Holy Spirit working in yet a fetus at that point, when in the presence of their Savior. And um, there, uh, you know, in terms of that mother coming into the, the worship services of God, being there in the presence of that same Savior, and the Holy Spirit's opportunity to work. We wish there were a clear passage that we could point to. There just is not. That, that specific case is not, is not addressed. We also say that, you know, these things are in the, in the hands of God, and we point to a loving and compassionate God who desired children to come to him, not that, that they be kept away, and, and so on. Those are a couple of things that, that we say in, in that circumstance and, uh, and point to that, those things, okay? All right, uh, real quickly here, let's, um, uh, so verse 13, I write these things to you who, who believe in the name of the Son of God, and what's the purpose? That you may know that you have eternal life. Notice John wants them to be confident in their eternal life in the midst of those false teachers. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, this is a good point, a good point to uh, remind ourselves. When we pray for physical things in this world, like a job, a car, uh, even health, uh, we often will add the phrase, according to your will or if it be your will. Because do I necessarily know when I pray for physical things that do, do I necessarily know that God wants me to have that job or that car or that? I really don't. In fact, if you ever had the experience where you wanted something so much at one point in your life and you just thought for sure this must be the will of God and later on down the road you think, boy, I'm sure glad that didn't happen. I'm sure glad I didn't get that. And at the time you were just convinced. So the reason I say this is, uh, notice there, it's we ask according to his will, John says. And you will hear us, even in church, as we pray from the altar for those who are hospitalized and who are ill, we'll many times uh, insert the phrase, according to your will, or if it be your will. And uh, it doesn't mean we don't like the, the people who are hospitalized or you know, we're trying to wish evil on them or something. That's not the case. We're just recognizing that, okay? Then, now, what about when we pray for spiritual things like a strong faith, forgiveness of sin, uh, 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 resisting temptation in our daily lives? Do we have to add the phrase, if it be your will, to these things? No, we do not. And the, the difference is we know that that is God's will. Why? because his word tells us it is. So we never use the phrase, if it be your will, when we're praying for you know, either forgiveness or strength or you know, any, of those, any of those things, because we know that they are. And notice there, we know that he hears us. John just got done wanting them to be confident in their faith that they have this life and be confident that when we pray, he hears us. You know, it's not just 
empty words, and that our requests will be granted again according to his will. All right? All right, let me stop there. We've got uh, just a few minutes left before we go to the gospel lesson, but we'll try to get any comments, questions on this. All right, let's real quickly, we're going to go to John. Uh, I, left, I left off, I noticed on the sheet here, I left off the name of the book. Uh, I, I got the chapter and verses here. We could have played Name That Gospel, I guess, right? Uh, <laughs> it's John 17. Sorry about that. It's John 17, uh, verses 11b through 19. This is sometimes referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, this is in the upper room on Monday, Thursday evening. This is when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He's eating the Passover meal with his disciples and institutes the Lord's Supper. Uh, 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 chapters 13 through 16 of John are called, uh, sometimes called the farewell discourse of Jesus. It's a long uh, speech, you might say, or a discussion with his disciples. And now, in chapter 17, he turns from them and prays to the Father for them. And it is one of the most beautiful prayers and most moving prayers. He knows what's about to happen within a matter of just hours. And these men with whom he has walked and talked and eaten, you know, and been with for the last three years now, he lifts up in prayer to the Father. It's just a beautiful thing. Uh, he is going to the Father on their behalf. And we then, by extension, uh, are included as well. But let's, let's just real quickly, I wish we had, uh, wish that guy hadn't taken so long earlier on, we had more time. Uh, verse 11, and I am no longer in, this, in the world, so his departure is so imminent that he can speak of it as if it's already happening, but they, the disciples, are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. You know, in other words, preserve them in your name. In everything that they are through you, keep them in this, which you have given to me, they, that they may be one, even as we are one. You go back to what we saw in the book of Acts after Jesus leaves, they are of one mind, right? He's praying here beforehand, he's praying that they may be one, and he makes the comparison, even though, even as we, Father, you and I, are one. Okay? A reference to the triune God there, too, isn't it? Three persons, one God, even as we are one. Uh, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, which would be Judas, yeah, unfortunately. Uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Isn't that neat where Jesus talks about the joy that he has, and that joy would be of the forgiveness, the, the victory over death, uh, everything, uh, joy, that they might have this joy. I'm going to talk about that as Christians. Okay? Um, let's go down to verse uh, 14 then. I have given them your word. Notice that's the gift he has given to them. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. What does it mean to be of the world? You're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. The values that we have, sure. It's almost like it, the world is not supposed to be shaping us and molding us, right? We're, it's not that we're supposed to go off and be in a monastery somewhere and seclude ourselves, take ourselves into isolation, 
But on the other hand, we're to be in the world. In fact, we are the light of the world, salt of the earth, as Jesus says, but not of the world, not molded and shaped by the world, okay? And we could talk that that applies to us, doesn't it, as individuals, and it applies to us as a congregation also, that, that we are in the world but not of the world, okay? And then verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Who would that be? Satan, yeah. Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Uh, we can almost hear the echo of the, the petition of the Lord's Prayer, right? Deliver us from, literally it's the evil one. The evil one in the original language. Okay? Uh, verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. When you sanctify something, you make it holy. You set it apart for God's use. So sanctify them. Keep them holy. Set them apart for your use. Uh, notice there, through the word, your word is truth. Uh, 18, as you have sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Notice Jesus is setting himself apart here for the use of the Father, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. All right. Time is up, if not more than up. Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.